0: at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host and mini-series It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com Today, Nate discusses Mick Jagger's 1990s interview with Rolling Stone Magazine's Yon Winter, in which Mick looked back at Brian Jones in the early days of the band. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
1: It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and we're continuing to plow my obsession with the Rolling Stones and Brian Jones in particular. Today, I'm going to talk about two things, a little bit about um, a biography called Brian Jones by Alan Clayson that came out about 20 years ago. just has a few quotes in it. I don't want to disrespect the book. I just haven't done the prep to really do a full episode on it, but I want to dive in on an interview that Mick Jagger did with uh, former Rolling Stone publisher Jan Winner called Mick Jagger Remembers. That was from December of 1995. That's one of the most insightful pieces as to what Mick Jagger's thinking was about Brian Jones, at least as of 20 years ago. I doubt he's thought about Brian very much in the intervening <laughs> years. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe it's like Scrooge and Marley and he gets a visit from him every July 4th or something. But... um I I don't know either way, but the the two quotes I wanted to get from the Alan Clayson book are pretty brief, but I I just wanted to get this out there. That has a great quote from Ian Stewart, who died before Clayson could interview him. Um, But Ian Stewart said, he was a real idiot, Brian. He set out to be a rebel and to upset people. He felt it was a thing he had to do. It was pointless because really he was quite a nice guy and his parents were nice people. And this uh, ties in with a quote that Keith Richards had, which was that at some point, Brian decided to become a full-time professional rebel, and it didn't really suit him. So that when he wanted to be obnoxious, he had to really make an effort, and having made the effort, he would be really obnoxious. But I want to contrast this with something that um, Pat, Pat Andrews, the mother of, I believe, Brian's third child, but she may have been the mother of his fourth child. She was a long time – she spent more time with Brian, though, than most of the other women who bore his children other than Linda Lawrence. Um, she was the first woman that Brian pulled his cuckoo nest move of moving into her parents' house before impregnating her and abandoning her. Um, she said that when Brian's sister Pamela, who was, I believe, two years younger than Brian, and he was three years old when she died of leukemia – Or he was four years old uh, when she died of leukemia at the age of two. And Pat Andrews said, his mother told Brian that Pamela had been sent away for being naughty. And he may have formed the impression that it wasn't healthy to become too attached to anyone because they'd leave you. His parents' behavior wasn't intentionally cruel, but it was to do with the attitude then that you had to be cruel to be kind, especially toward boys. Brian really suffered from this, particularly as he wasn't able to let his artistic nature surface. Though when he moved out, he painted a beautiful mosaic on the wall of his flat. His father wanted him to be an optician, a solicitor, an architect, something with a solidly professional veneer to it, though he could have just about handled it if Brian had wanted to be a classical musician. So I just wanted to contrast that in Stewart's claim that Brian's parents were nice people. And I think in a lot of ways they were. And I think in particular his father, had a lot of feeling for Brian that he expressed his, his mother, as far as I know, only did one interview ever with Stanley Booth. And we talked about that on that episode, but there's several letters from Brian's father to Brian that are uh, kind of touching. And the new Nick Bloomfield documentary uh, reads one that we don't know if Brian ever received from his father, kind of asking forgiveness. But what I want to get into is this Mick Jagger interview with Jan Winter from the nineties. Um, it's, Pretty fascinating insight, and that one of the first things, and, I, and I'm doing this totally in perspective of what can we learn about Brian Jones from this interview, so uh, uh, forgive forgive me, Mick Jagger fans, but one of the first questions was about the early, early days of the group. Yan Winter asks him, you were going to the London School of Economics and just getting started playing with the Stones. How did you decide which one you were going to do? And Mick said, well, I started to do both, really. The Stones thing was weekends and college was in the week. God, the Rolling Stones had so little work. It was like one gig a month, so it wasn't really that difficult. We just couldn't get any work. And then winter fol- follows up with, how committed to the group were you then? Well, I wasn't totally committed. It was a good, fun thing to do. But Keith and Brian didn't have anything else to do, so they wanted to rehearse all the time. I'd like to rehearse once a week and do a show Saturday. The show that we did was three or four numbers, so there wasn't a tremendous amount of rehearsal needed. And that pretty much tells you what the secret ingredient that brian jones brought to the stones was and it was commitment in the early days and a vision that he wanted to have an r&b band and he and keith richards sat around this freezing cold apartment in edith grove and played guitar together and listened to records for like eight hours a day Mick Jagger would go to school all day during the day and come in at night and and uh, participate in their antics and do what rehearsal he needed to do but Basically, Mick Jagger is not someone who would have ever become a professional musician if Brian Jones hadn't dragged him along and forced him to do it. Uh, Mick was an incredibly practical person, and uh, it was all the way in – to I believe a full year of the Stones. It, was, it wasn't it was until they had signed record contracts, signed management contracts, and signed a contract to do a theater tour of England that he actually left uh, the London School of Economics. So he was very uncommitted to a musical career until Brian Jones and Keith Richards made it manifest for him. Now he was always a gifted performer, and, and in fact He talks about how the first time he got an indication that music might be something he would want to do was Winner's first question is actually, when did you first realize you were a performer, that what you did on stage was affecting people? And Mick says, when I was 18 or so, the Stones were just starting to play some clubs around London, and I realized I was getting a lot of girl action when normally I hadn't gotten much. I was very unsophisticated then. So Jagger's kind of discovering that he has this unique talent as a performer, and he obviously did love the music and studied the music closely and was a big fan and, and had many gifts, but he never would have... Pursued music as a career He was just far too cautious And then um, they get into A detailed discussion of Brian Later on in the interview And it's pretty interesting Um, But let's hear our first song first This is um, Baby What's Wrong This is from the initial sessions Recorded by Glenn Johns With the Stones in 1963 It's the first recordings of the original Six piece Stones lineup It's got Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts But also Ian Stewart And this is a song that features Keith Richards' lead guitar in a big way and gives you a pretty good idea of of how exciting the Stones could be this early in their career. Baby, What's Wrong, a cover of the Rolling Stones recorded uh, with Glenn Johns in 1963 that was never released. And I did, it's not just how exciting they could be, it's that this was Brian Jones' vision for the band. And, and Brian Jones' vision for the band always included a big, meaty part for Keith Richards' lead guitar part. So he wasn't entirely... That's the the, the, the the contradiction at the heart of Brian Jones is this is a guy who wanted to form a group and he formed a group that essentially functioned as a, a perfect chassis, like an automobile chassis that he could put any kind of, of pieces on top of. And, and he created an ephemeral role for himself, even though he was the rhythm guitarist. On many songs, he didn't play guitar at all. He played harmonica, he played maracas. Um, he played on some songs dual lead guitar, especially on Jimmy Reed songs with Keith Richards. On other songs, he would play strictly rhythm guitar. On the Chuck Berry songs, it's particularly fascinating in the way that they would um play sort of contrasting rhythm parts and make it much more complicated than the original Chuck Berry pieces. But but anyway, let's get back to the Mick Jagger interview and 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 hear what mick has to say about brian because it's it's very interesting there's 20 mentions of jones in the interview Uh, he gives brian some credit for uh, under my thumb why does under my thumb work so well and he says it's got brian playing those marimbas that riff played on marimbas really makes it which so you know he's willing to give brian some credit sometimes which which is a minimum and um also credits him with a wonderful steel guitar part, as Jan Winter calls it. It wasn't a steel guitar part. It was a slide guitar part on the song No Expectations on Beggar's Banquet. And it was the last song that Brian played on. And here's what Mick said about it. It's got that wonderful steel guitar part, Winter says. And Jagger says, that's Brian playing. We were sitting around in a circle on the floor, singing a plane, recording with open mics. That was the last time I remember Brian really being totally involved in something that was really worth doing. He was right there with everyone else. It's funny how you remember, but that was the last moment I remember him doing that because he had just lost interest in the band. And then he goes on to talk about um, Brian. Winter says, "Can we talk about Brian Jones for a second here?" And Mick says, "Sure." The thing about Brian is he was an extremely difficult person. You didn't really feel like you don't really feel like talking bad about someone that had such a miserable time, but he did give everyone else an extremely miserable ride. Anyway, there was something very, very disturbed about him. He was very unhappy with life, very frustrated. He was very talented, but he was a very paranoid personality and not at all suited to be in show business laughs. And I think Jagger obviously knew Brian well and nailed him. I mean, he just like Andrew Lou Goldham said when he said that Brian Jones was like a cat that had already had its nine lives and was sent back by mistake for a tenth, that Brian was very unhappy with life, very frustrated and very, very disturbed. And when when somebody who knew Jagger Jones as well as Jagger did categorizes him as very, very disturbed, uh, I think we should take that seriously, that Brian Jones came in already brain-scrambled and – The fame and fortune did not help, and the drugs and alcohol did not help, and he just got worse and worse, but he was already um, quite off. And Winter follows up with, hmm, so show business killed him? Jagger says, yeah, well, he killed himself, but he should have been playing trad jazz weekends and teaching in school. He probably would have been better off, and that's... An interesting way for Jagger to compartmentalize his thinking about Brian Jones is that in a lot of ways, Jones was a trad jazz guy. He's somebody who played saxophones and trad jazz. and Trad jazz, as we've talked about on the show a few times, was a big fad in Britain after Skiffle. And before the emergence of the Beatles and the Beat groups, it was uh, kind of the dominant club form for several years. And it was really the Stones R&B movement in London that killed it off. It was a bigger movement in the United States through the '40s and '50s, uh, but became a pop movement in in the UK in a very interesting way. In the Simon Reynolds Retromania episode, we talked about it a little bit, as it was one of the first self-consciously nostalgic. M- movements and music and it was a bunch of british it wasn't just british kids it started in the states but the british kids picked it up and the whole idea was to try to replicate the music from new orleans in the 1920s or music made by people from new orleans because there wasn't a record industry in new york new orleans in the 1920s so people like louis armstrong and king oliver had to go to places like chicago and new york to play and be recorded and then later on, there are other artists that were rediscovered and um, and 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 brought to light. Who, you know, purists will debate the the how great those players were. But anyway, it was it was a fad. It was it was very popular, especially with middle class kids. Brian Jones participated in it, and and Jagger's trying to write him off as being part of the movement that they killed. But the reason that. Brian Jones wanted to lead an R&B movement, and his proudest moments were when R&B and blues were brought to the forefront of British pop culture by the Stones, including the time in, I believe it was 63, it was definitely by 64, they had taken over the jazz festivals. There were some pretty major jazz festivals, and the Stones' R&B tent drew a crowd that that dwarfed the combined crowd of the jazz, uh, trad jazz scene. And Keith Richards has talked about it several times that nobody was more excited about killing the trad jazz scene than Brian Jones. So it's pretty disingenuous for Jagger to say he was a trad jazz guy, you know, and he should, it would have, he probably would have been better off had he not pursued a musical career, but then on the other hand, what else would he have done? (laughs) I mean, uh, but, um, then then Winter asks him what was Brian's contribution to the band. Well, he had a huge contribution in the early days. He was very obsessed with it, which you always need. Obsessed with the band Winter asks, yeah, getting it going and its personality and how it should be. He was obsessed. Too obsessed for me. There's a certain enthusiasm, and after that it becomes obsession. I go back to my thing about collecting. It's nice to collect stamps, but if it becomes obsessive and you start stealing for your stamps, that's too much. He was obsessed about the image of the band, and he was very exclusionary. He saw the Stones as a blues band based on Muddy Waters, Elmore James, and that tradition. I don't think he really liked playing Chuck Berry songs. He was very purist. He was real middle class. He came from one of the most middle class towns in England, Cheltenham, which is one of the most genteel towns in the most genteel area of England. So his whole outlook and upbringing were even worse in the gentility fashion than mine. The thing about this is it's true in part that Brian Jones was definitely obsessed with blues, particularly Elmore James and that uh, Chicago blues tradition. But the but for Jagger to say, I don't think he really liked playing Chuck Berry songs. To me, the proof is in the pudding. And when you hear Brian Jones playing Chuck Berry songs so brilliantly, there's no way to fake it. The, the Stones burned Chuck Berry on around and around. They did a better version than Chuck Berry did, which is not easy. And a lot of it is because of Brian's very, I call it subtle rhythm guitar playing. There's nothing subtle about it. He, he Everything he did was very straightforward and very simple. But the combination of his part and Keith's part is very subtle. They were both playing two very simple parts that didn't quite fit together perfectly. So the net effect was this very complicated swing that it added to the record. And the other thing is that Brian Jones specialized in Bo Diddley songs. Like, it's often forgotten, and frequently online you'll see Keith Richards credited with playing the guitar on the Rolling Stones version of Bo Diddley's Mona, but... By uh, Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts accounts, that was Brian. And, And if you read the Jimmy Felds book, which we talked about, Felds also talks about how, you know, at one point, Brian, after they met the Beatles, Brian immediately wanted to fire Bill Wyman and have a four piece band. And he was thinking he would take over on bass, just like Paul McCartney. But one of the worries was how would we play the Bo Diddley numbers and that he would just have to teach Keith how to play the parts. And he probably did. Keith, Keith was a sponge and a mimic and able to learn anything he heard. Um, and, and the two of them played together so much that they basically learned how to replicate each other's catalog uh, of licks. But the twist came when they did their first theater tour. And originally it was opening up for the Everly Brothers, but then um, Bo Diddley and Little Richard were out to the tour because it wasn't happening um, yet, and or it wasn't selling tickets. And uh, so they took all the Bo Diddley numbers out of the repertoire and never really got them back in the way they had been. But uh, Steph tells me it's way past time to cue. So let's hear Roadrunner. This is an This is from that same first uh, set of sessions the Stones did, or the first sessions the Stones did with Glenn Johns in 1963. And this is Bo Diddley's Roadrunner with Brian Jones in a featured role on guitar. the early Rolling Stones doing Bo Diddley's Roadrunner. And again, by all accounts, Glenn Johns, who hated Brian, and everyone else's that Brian ran those sessions like a dictator. And those first five songs, that was exactly what Brian wanted the Stones to be. And it's a pretty complete vision. And it's quite rocking. It's not any kind of blues purist thing. And, and the element of blues he was most fascinated with was the raunchy sound quality. That was Brian's real gift, or one of them. Um, Bo Diddley, when he met Brian and Keith on that tour, was blown away by Brian's ability to mimic his guitar playing style. And Bo Diddley played in an odd tuning. It's called the Sevastopol tuning. It's something he had taught himself. And he used a lot of odd tremolo effects to manipulate the rhythms of his guitar playing and he was astounded that brian had figured out both the tuning and the exact amp settings to replicate what he was doing muddy waters also talked about how uncanny it was when the stones first played recorded in chicago at chess studios and he got to see them play and the stones covered muddy waters i can't be satisfied and muddy waters was very impressed by Brian's ability to imitate his sly guitar style. So there was more to it than just that Brian was this dusty trad jazz purist, um, but he was very, very complicated. But it is um, fair of Jagger to say that that Brian's contribution was huge in the early days and that it was his obsession. And as also the aspects of the band that he was obsessed with. The two things were getting it going and its personality and how it should be. And the personality of the Stones is what's carried them this whole way. Jagger and Richard's songwriting and creativity obviously took it many higher levels beyond where Jones got it. But Jones is the one who defined what are the Rolling Stones going to be. And that's a massive contribution to musical history, even though it's the kind of thing that can uh, be erased easily. And then Winter asks him, what started causing tensions in the group among Keith, you and Brian? Brian was a very jealous person and he didn't read the right books about leadership laughs. I, I, you can't argue with that. And then you can't be jealous and be a leader. Again, that's a very good insight. He was obsessed with the idea of being the leader of the band. But you have to realize that everyone in a band is all more or less together, and everyone has their own niche. And some people lead in some ways, and some people lead in others. He never could understand that. He never got it, and he was kind of young, so he alienated people. And as I say, he was very narrow-minded in his view of music. And really, Keith and I had been very Catholic. So there's a a bit to parse there. I think he's dead right about Jones' inability to be a leader, Um, Because he was so paranoid and insecure and desperate for attention and the spotlight. And he was also so shifting. You know, Keith Richards would introduce him as early as 1963 to other people and say, uh, Here's Brian. He's a great bunch of guys. So Brian was already the schizophrenic personality or multiple personality case. And you can't be that and be a leader people look to a leader for simplicity of direction and clarity. And, you know, we're going to go, we're going to do this and we're going to go that, that way and do that. And when you're someone like Brian Jones, who would openly question every decision he made and second guess himself constantly, that inspired no confidence. And then we'll get to the part about how Brian lost control of the band here. But before I get to that, I want to, I want to respond to this, claim by Jagger that Brian was very narrow-minded in his view of music because that's just demonstrably not true I mean Brian Jones was the one who brought in all the you know the Sitars and the dulcimers and the Kyoto's and and all these other instruments into the stones marimbas uh, he was also a very Catholic listener and was a, a very big fan of pop music. He was friends with the Mamas and the Papas, and there's multiple accounts where people like uh, Phil May of The Pretty Things, Pete Towns of The Who, George Harrison of The Beatles, Paul McCartney of The Beatles, talking about how much they enjoyed listening to music with Brian and talking about it with him and how open-minded he was, and that he was more open-minded in a lot of ways than Mick and Keith were. I think that's really probably a question of those people knew Brian better than they knew Mick or Keith, or they had spent more time talking music with Brian than they did with Mick and Keith. But this idea that Brian was some kind of fuddy-duddy, I think, is a misapprehension. But I do think it has roots in the fact that Brian was deeply conflicted about becoming a pop group. And the Stones, in retrospect, are seen as this revolutionary force that changed music. But in 1963 and 64, they were seen as a new variation on this beat group phenomenon, which was seen as disposable pop for teenage girls. And Brian Jones, being a classic middle class dude, wanted to make the kind of music that would be respected by other middle class dudes and generally music that's driving teenage and tween age girls crazy is not respected by middle-class dudes. <laughs> and so he had this big conflict and, and as his failure to select hit records for them uh, when he was given the opportunity to select the rep- recorded repertoire at the beginning uh, reflects, he really didn't have his thumb on the pop marketplace, but once Oldham and Jagger and Richards figured out what kind of songs they needed to do, to get pop success, Brian was all the way there. And in fact, you know, when the Beatles marched in and said, we've got a song for you to do, Brian was the one who took over and, and arranged I Want to Be Your Man and uh, gave it its raunchy sound. He essentially produced the record while Oldham was out of, of the country. He was the kind of person who was capable of being 100% into something one day and then the next day talking about how he didn't like it or he wasn't happy with it. He was just never happy with anything. So I think Mick and Keith were pretty bitter about that fight and that fight locked in their mind and and kind of sealed their view of Brian as a musician. So then Winter asked, but did you take away the leadership of the band from him? And Jagger said... He had never had the leadership of the band to take away. If you're the singer in the band, you always get more attention than anyone else. Brian got very jealous when I got attention, and the main jealousy was because Keith and I started writing songs, and he wasn't involved with that. To be honest, Brian had no talent for writing songs. None. I've never known a guy with less talent for songwriting. Multiple things to parse there. To claim that... Jones never had the leadership of the band is is patently false. I mean, there's paper that came out in the early days identifying Brian as the leader of the band. Um, they, there's multiple members of the Stones, Ian Stewart and Keith and Bill and Charlie have all said on different occasions that in the early days, Brian was absolutely the dictatorial leader of the band. It's just that He was an arranger and he told other people what to play. He wasn't the lead singer and he wasn't the front man. And yet in the early days of the band, like 63, 64, when they started to get fan mail, up to 70% of the fan mail for the Stones would be for Brian Jones. And so I think there was both Jagger and Richards were very jealous of each other and Jagger ultimately won. And Brian one of Brian's mistakes Keith often makes fun of him for having tried to compete with Mick on stage and and having changed his his stage mannerisms to try to com- imitate Mick and change and compete with Mick head- to head which was a losing game and Bill Wyman's also talked about how Brian's aura faded uh over the years, and he became less and less charismatic. But let's go ahead and take a break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk more about Mick Jagger's take on Brian Jones.
2: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them.
1: mick writing songs that's definitely true but the contradiction that mick's caught in it's it's like here he says to be honest brian had no talent for writing songs none i've never known a guy with less talent for songwriting in multiple other interviews he claims that brian never played him a full song that he had written and so and in the jimmy Felge book and i didn't talk about this um and i should have but There's a point at which Brian decides they're going to write a song, and he writes the whole thing himself, including the lyrics. And it was a first attempt at songwriting, so of course it wasn't any good. We've heard Mick and Keith's first attempts at songwriting, and they weren't very good. We've heard Paul McCartney and John Lennon's first attempts at songwriting, and they weren't very good. But Brian makes this one attempt, and his mistake was essentially trying to overwhelm Mick and Keith and not letting them contribute. He If he had just said, hey, Mick, why don't you write lyrics for this? I'm sure that would have helped uh, quite a bit. And he also wasn't – the way Mick and Keith would write songs together Is Keith would strum and hum, and Mick would draw the parts out that he thought were interesting, and together they would structure a song. Brian wasn't capable of doing that. He couldn't listen to Keith enough to to pull the songs out of him. But there's multiple songs where – We know for a fact that Brian came in with the lick, or the main riff of the song, and the song was built around it. The Last Time is an example of that. There's quite a bit of evidence to believe that the melody for Paint It Black came from the sitar part, rather than the sitar part following um, Mick Jagger's vocal melody, that it was the vice versa. And normally, if you write the melody that becomes the vocal melody of the song, or you write the key riff that's the signature of the song, you get a songwriting credit. But Brian um, never got that kind of credit. And and you know we've got the whole Marianne Faithful account of Brian writing the melody for Ruby Tuesday, and then Keith going and taking and writing the chords and the lyrics. That's Songwriting. <laughs> and even if you need somebody else to help you with the lyrics and, and the the chord structure, writing a melody like Ruby Tuesday is songwriting. So it's pretty grossly unfair for Jagger to say that. And and I do assume that he was so negatively impressed by Brian's first attempt at writing songs that he never gave him a second chance, and Brian wasn't confident enough to pursue pursue it. But then uh, Jan Winter asks... What did he have talent for? Jagger says he was a guitar player, and he also diverted his talent on other instruments. His original instrument was the clarinet, so he played harmonica because he was familiar with wind instruments. And that's all fair. And I think that Mick's um, point about Brian having diverted his talent onto other instruments is very fair and, and very much something that caused Brian to be kind of stunted so that in 1968 when they reconvened after the horrible year of 67 with all the drug arrests and the trials and everything brian was still relatively functional even though keith had taken anita away from him and he'd you know bled guilty to drug charges up until his second bust in may of 1968 there's every evidence he was quite active he plays on a number of songs on Beggar's Banquet and makes significant contributions. No Expectations is a big one, but his sitar parts on Street Fighting Man are absolutely central. And his lead guitar parts on Jumpin' Jack Flash are absolutely central to that song as well. So Brian was still in there contributing until the second time he was busted by the police. And there's another interview in which Mick basically blames the police for hounding Brian to death. And I think that that... Is a big factor, and Keith also talks about it. How they, the police smelled weakness and really started going in on um, Brian. But there's other accounts that hint that people within the Stones organization, Les Perrin, who is their PR officer, in fact, is sometimes blamed for this that somebody within the organization was telling the police where Brian was staying. Brian would try to stay in a different flat every night to avoid police attention. And somebody within the stones organization allegedly was uh, telling the police where he was. So, you know, the dude was, was hounded to death and in a a very real sense while he himself was, was trying to kill himself as fast as he could Uh, anyway. But, then Winner's next question is, did he give the band a sound? Yes. And this is what I think is Brian's real contribution. It wasn't so much any particular aspect of his playing. It was his arranging ability and his ability to say, you play this, I'll play that, other guy play this part, and put it all together, emphasizing the aspects of music he wanted to bring out, which tended to be the most rough and maniacal aspects of the music and so that is the real talent to me is that he created the chassis the the master architecture of the stones as a band and set the tone for what kind of sounds they wanted to make and so it's much more than um Mick says yes he played the slide slide guitar at a time when no one really played it. He played in the style of Elmore James, and he had this very lyrical touch. He evolved into more of an experimental musician, but he lost touch with the guitar. And as always, as a musician, you must have one thing you do very well. He dabbled too much. Now, I think he's dead right about that. But part of it is also the fact that stupid Brian Jones broke his wrist in 1966 trying to punch Anita Pallenberg and never really could play guitar again as well as he had played it before that. Now he did play there's, you know, some people say, Oh, he he never could play it again. But if you listen to live tapes of the stones in 67, you can tell the guy could still play a pretty mean guitar, but by 1969, like his last attempts to, to form a new band after the stones, he just wouldn't play guitar at all. Something had happened and perhaps his wrist never really recovered. But, um, the next song I want to play is uh, the Stones version of Motown's Money and this is to me a quintessential example of Brian Jones leading the Rolling Stones. This is Motown's Money done as a bow number with wild over the top harmonica and guitar parts and this this is Brian Jones' vision for the Stones, Money. was Money by the Brian Stones covering the classic Barry Gordy Barrett-Strong Motown song. And then Winner asks, does Brian deserve the kind of mythological status he has among hardcore Stones fanatics? And Mick is generous enough to say, well, he was an integral part of the band and he, for whatever it means, was a big part of it. So... Doesn't really. He says the same thing twice there, but he is credited with being an integral part of the band, and that's a big deal. Wonder then asks, can you describe your falling apart? It happened gradually. Brian went from being an obsessive about the band to being rather an outsider. He'd turn up late to recording sessions and he'd miss the odd gig every now and then. He'd let his health deteriorate because he drank too much and he took drugs when they were new, hung out too much, stayed up too late, partied too much, and didn't concentrate on what he was doing. He let his talent slide. And there's no doubt about that, that Brian Jones immediately, as Ian Stewart said, as soon as he got the slightest bit of fame and attention and money he immediately started acting like the biggest idiot possible and drank way too much but the thing is that spirit of Brian as the wild man is integral to the Stones that they became a band about excess and he lived it and it's a common pattern in bands for for one member to live it and another other members to tell the story of the member who's living it. And so, you know, without Brian's contribution to the personality, even the negative contributions, the stones wouldn't have been what they've been. Um, then he talks about firing him, which I'm not that interested in. I've heard it uh, a lot. Um, but then that, but then Winter asks, did you feel, do you feel guilty about it all? You know, Charlie Watts is somebody who said he did feel guilty about, about Brian, but, Mick Jagger says, no, I don't really. I do feel that I behaved in a very childish way, but we were very young. And in some ways, we picked on him. And that's a dramatic understatement. They absolutely rode him ragged uh, for years on end, um, doing things like having him record harmonica parts until his mouth was bleeding without even turning the mic on and just laughing about it. But then Mick says, but unfortunately, he made himself a target for it. He was very, very jealous, very difficult, very manipulative. And if you do that in this kind of a group of people, you get back as good as you give, to be honest. I wasn't understanding enough about his drug addiction. No one seemed to know much about drug addiction. Things like LSD were all new. No one knew the harm. People thought cocaine was good for you. The bit about Brian being the author of his own misfortunes, and Brian Jones is very much the one who set the tone for... Competitive one-upmanship and manipulative backstabbing within the Stones. He was just incapable of being a straightforward person and was constantly whispering one thing in one person's ear and something else in another person's ear and trying to stir up trouble. As Marianne Faithfull said that you know uh, Ronnie Wood's great role in the band is acting as a mediator between Keith and, and Mick. And that that was originally Brian's role and that you couldn't have found a worse person. To be your mediator than uh, <laughs> Brian Jones. So then Winter says, I'm going to quote you something Charlie told me. That's Charlie Watts, the drummer of the Stones. He said, Brian Jones had a death wish at a young age. Brian's talent wasn't up to it. He wasn't up to leading a band. He was not a pleasant person to be around, and he was never there to help people to write a song. That's when Mick lost his patience. We carried Brian Jones. And that compresses a whole lot into one sentence. And Keith." Uh, Charlie said other things before he passed away that were a little bit more nuanced. But I definitely think he's right that Brian Jones had a death wish. And as far as Brian's talent not being up to it, it depends how you define the talent. I think his talent to be a leader of a band was not up to it. And and his songwriting talent was not up to to doing it. I, I think had Brian come along in a different era, if he had come along in the swing band era, his arranger talents would have set him to be in control of the band. But in the 60s, which was a new era that, you know, nobody knew in 1962 that the Beatles and Bob Dylan were going to come along and totally revolutionize the way the music industry worked and make the performer songwriter central. The The performer songwriter had always been uh, a secondary thing. I mean, if somebody like Tuck Berry or Bo- Buddy Holly wrote songs, that was and perform them themselves that was unusual but very much optional people like Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley didn't write their own songs um, and it wasn't it wasn't seen as a major liability but by 63 64 the songwriter had become absolutely central to the band and the fact that the songwriters make the most money is also a big factor uh, Mick has something interesting to say about Charlie's comments he says well that's straight to the point isn't it whether he had a death wish or not I don't know he was a very sad pitiable figure at the end he was a talented musician but he let it go and proved to be a rather sad precursor to a lot of other people why this should be I don't know I find it rather morbid but it does keep happening with people like Kurt Cobain remember this interview is taking place just a year after Cobain's suicide why 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 does this happen in music? Does this happen in accounting too? Is this something that happens in every profession? It's just that we don't read about the accountants? I think the answer is yes. It does happen in every profession. It's just played out in public with people like Brian and Kurt Cobain. And this is interesting. I think he has a certain point, but I also think that the musician's lifestyle is inherently. More dangerous than the accounting lifestyle. There's plenty, and I've known them. There's plenty of people who destroy themselves in a corporate structure. I mean, there's plenty of alcoholics in every in every industry, or people with um, self sabotage, self destructive tendencies. But I think the combination of needing to be creatively open and like keeping your childlike naivete to be an artist that's necessary to be a musician. That makes you vulnerable, you're open, you're sensitive. And the second thing is the lifestyle of a musician, you're inherently having to work when everyone else is partying, meaning you're always at the party. And if you're someone like Brian Jones who didn't have the sense to insulate himself from that, it just means that you're on a treadmill of constant partying. And as somebody who is already physically unhealthy and had a death wish, you know, recipe for disaster. Um, And then the last question is, how do you think Brian died? There's been a lot of speculation. Mick says, drowned in a pool. That other stuff is people trying to make money. And it's entirely fair, I think, there have been plenty of books with ridiculous conspiracy theories about the death of Brian Jones, alleging that Mick and Keith held him down and drowned him or that there was a huge party with 30 people there at his, his estate that night. But nonetheless, there is some reason to believe that Frank Thurgood, who was a pretty shady character and an associate of this guy Tom Keelock, who was a extremely shady character who had done security uh, for this and chauffeur work for the Stones for several years and was kind of a caretaker to them, and Thorogood was somebody who was hired to do repairs on Brian's new mansion. The 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 um. Farm that was owned by A. Milne of Winnie the Pooh, the Winnie the Pooh house. caught I can't remember the name of the farm. Apologies, but the idea of having some hanger-on from the Rolling Stones organization living in your house, ostensibly doing repair work, was a disaster for Brian. And and it ended up his last months. He was living in this house with a girlfriend he barely knew, and a massive drinking habit. And an entire crew of roadies and goons who are supposed to be doing a major remodel don't, weren't doing a very good job. And it's entirely possible and entirely likely that Brian, with his tendency of goading people into horrible behavior, either by doing horrible things to them or – provoking them into doing horrible things to them. I can absolutely envision Brian Jones taunting Frank Thurgood in a swimming pool when they're both drunk and high to the point that Thurgood held him under the water and drowned him. But that's neither here nor there. Thurgood never got a trial. Uh, Keylock, of all people claimed um, that Thurgood made a deathbed confession and said that he had killed Brian, but I don't think it's fair to Thurgood to say he killed Brian Jones definitively, but I do think it's possible that there was misadventure, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's all I've got to say about Mick Jagger and Brian Jones um, at the moment. But I want to play one last song, and this is I tend to have a maximalist view of Brian Jones's contributions to the band. And sometimes I'm wrong. For a long time, I thought he played the slide guitar part on Parachute Woman, but that's definitively been disproved. But this song, Miss Amanda Jones, was recorded very early on in the Los Angeles sessions for Between the Buttons. And it it was recorded before Brian went to Morocco and broke his wrist. So Brian could still play guitar very well at this point. And when you listen to Let It Bleed, where Keith played most all the guitar parts or you listen to the songs on aftermath where we know Keith was the only guitar player and there's only one or two. And then there's several songs on between the buttons where Keith's the only guitar player and he plays some great parts and he makes the songs work, but there was a factor of, so much going on when Brian and Keith sat down to play together. Like, you'll never be able to convince me that Brian Jones didn't play at least two guitar parts on Stupid Girl or Flight 505, and Keith played two additional parts on each of those songs because there's just mayhem of very simple rhythm guitar parts that overlay into almost an orchestra of guitars and and i just don't believe that keith richards came up with all of the parts on this song i think this is keith and brian having one of their last guitar duets miss amanda jones And that was the Rolling Stones doing Miss Amanda Jones written by Jagger and Richards from the Between the Buttons albums. You've been listening to Let It Roll. I've been discussing the interview Mick Jagger remembers with Jan Winter from Rolling Stone in 1995. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it and come back and let it roll again with us next time.
0: Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Roll Cast, and check out our website at letterrollpodcast.com. Thursday, we'll have another Let It Roll nightmare. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com.